Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For today's episode, I am joined by the co-host of the podcast, At Pod Latcha. Chuck, thank you for coming on Independent Thought today. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Desmond. I am doing great. How about yourself? Absolutely great. Thank you for coming on the show today. You know, for, for those who are unaware, I came across your podcast, you know, a few months back, was checking out a couple of different your episodes, went through your Instagram page. Really love what you guys have going on, you and your co-host Callie, who's not with us here today, but you know, wish her nothing but the best of health right now. Uh, the one thing that kind of struck me was I'm always fascinated by people who are talking about progressive politics, you know, in certain parts of the country that are more rural, more defined by, you know, I guess you would say conservative politics. But before we get into all of that, let me just ask you off the top here. Why did you start this podcast and what was the the goal in mind when you did start it? Yeah, so I started it along with a, a previous co-host of ours, uh, John Eisner, back in December 2019. Uh, he ended up having to leave the show um, for, for unrelated reasons, not because he uh, uh, had any issues with the show. But um, we started in December 2019 because we felt like progressive voices were underrepresented from Appalachia just in general. Uh, but especially in like the podcast arena and and new media in general. And so we really wanted to have an outlet for us to just express our opinions about the place that we love and care about so much. We were both from West Virginia. I, at the time and currently still live outside of West Virginia and, and he still lives there to this day. And my current co-host lives there to this day. But we wanted um, an opportunity to really talk about the issues that we care about because oftentimes when Appalachia is covered in the media, it's covered um, either inaccurately or leaning into stereotypes or often people just associate it with right-wing politics and mm -hmm. Republican politics. And so we wanted to, I guess, provide a counter-narrative to, to what has traditionally been covered about Appalachia. And so that's why we started it. The impetus was, a, <clears throat> excuse me, the impetus was basically in 2018, John had run a local campaign for House of Delegates in West Virginia. I helped manage that campaign uh, in a very, very Republican district. Um, and although he did well, he didn't do well enough to win, but we wanted to take the issues that we were talking about in that campaign and keep talking about it basically because they, those issues still um, were relevant then and they're relevant now. And so that's, that's what led to it. And at the time, I don't think there was really any other podcast quite like ours and i don't think there really is one now at least to the extent of what we've done but i think it's also been you know kind of evolved into a platform where we want to lift up other voices that people may not know or be aware of from appalachia um people that we think folks both from the region and outside it should be aware of and so that's what we're trying to do with our platform that we have now you spoke about some of the stereotypes that people have you know of appalachia I mean, I could imagine what some of those are. You know, I think I've heard some of them a lot. You know, obviously, when people are covering that area, people are always talking about like, oh, well, these people, you know, like they they feel these things. It's always like these 
I guess you would say, obviously, as you were saying, like these mischaracterizations of people who live in that area. But what is the one stereotype that you hear the most that you just feel, I guess, the most annoyed by? Oh, man, it's hard to narrow it down to one. Um, You know, I think it's just uneducated. Mm. And the thing about stereotypes is that they're often grounded in a modicum of truth, but that truth is exploited and exacerbated beyond reality. And that's really the case. I mean, every issue is a stereotype in Appalachia. You can find that issue anywhere. Inbred people like cannibal hillbillies like they cover in in wrong turn maybe you won't find cannibal hillbillies everywhere but um uneducated toothless don't have shoes you know backwards thinking super like right-leaning republicans everywhere poor all those things and you can find that anywhere in the country uh but i think the uneducated one really rubs me the wrong way because i think it implies both a level of misunderstanding about the people and a level of misunderstanding about what being educated means. It doesn't mean holding a four-year degree from an Ivy League institution. It could mean just somebody who is extremely knowledgeable about their field and their their um, vocation. And so I, I think that one just really bothers me because people would look at someone like my dad, for example, is uneducated because he didn't go to college. My dad's one of the smartest people that, that I've ever met when it comes to mechanics and fixing small engines Uh, Mm because that's what he did his entire life that he worked at a aluminum and manganese plant and so i think that one kind of personally bothers me right but i think that the way that we've tried to frame the discussion around it is and it's evolved over time but is not to say that like oh these these issues don't exist at all in appalachia it's just that they exist everywhere that this is not should not be the controlling narrative about this place and in fact, there's a lot more to this region than meets the eye or that people may be aware of. So given the fact that, you know, while there might be a diversity of opinions as far as, you know, political opinions are concerned in that area, we do see the fact that, you know, like you have your Joe Mansions of the world coming out of states like West Virginia. Obviously, the area is now mostly controlled by Republican politics. How did you yourself, I guess, become a progressive? And on top of that, I I saw recently you had an episode where you were talking about progressive organizing in the area. Like, kind of like, walk me through that. What what is it like being a progressive in that area and organizing? And how did you come to be one yourself? Yeah, so I would say, well, first of all, I I don't do a lot of progressive organizing currently. Um, I have in the past, but... I would say that there's progressives everywhere. I think they're just underrepresented, especially in rural areas, or at least covered in a way that's underrepresented. But the way that I became a progressive, I guess, is my upbringing. I was I was uh, raised in a union household uh, by parents who I think taught me to care about all people. Yeah, and and to to that everybody has something of value to bring to the table and that you shouldn't judge people based on their background, where they grew up, things like that. And that's kind of how I was raised. And I don't know. I mean, I I think just over time being from a working class family really formed and shaped my beliefs on those things. I think when it comes to progressive organizing in those spaces is like, you have to be tactical, you have to be committed and you have to learn how to identify what the wins are because especially in a place like West Virginia, you're not going to change things overnight, electorally speaking. West Virginia used to be an extremely democratic state. 
Now, it wasn't necessarily a hugely progressive state, although the modern day labor movement owes a lot of its birth to things that happen in West Virginia. But I think it's there are so many people that are committed to it. Their their voices, I think, get um get muffled by a lot of like the national narrative around places like West Virginia and Kentucky, but there is a lot of progressive organizing happening there. And I think a lot of it is about community-based organizing, like knowing what the issues are, what people care about and being able to communicate in a way that resonates with people. I think there's so many people who maybe they vote Republican, but they probably have a lot more progressive views than what you may think or what you may assume, you know, there's so many people that, you know, when it boils down to it, it's, it's, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They're working class people. They're people who are struggling to get by and they don't feel like any of their government represents them. And I think that's a starting point for a lot of people, excuse me, when it comes to organizing in in spaces that aren't traditionally considered progressive. Yeah. That's actually the perfect lead into the next thing I wanted to ask you. Cause I think we live in these insular bubbles now, you know, besides just the, the communities that you live in in real life, it's also, the online communities that we're all in, you know, the algorithms of the world have us kind of just like sucked into kind of seeing the same thing over and over again. And when it leads you to believe, you know, that, you know, the way that you're thinking is probably the only way that you're thinking. And so when you see some other thought, it seems so foreign to you, but I guess living in a place like that and talking with people who, you know, are going to be seeing things differently from you and, and kind of going back to the time where you were doing a little bit of organizing, what was the thing that you found the most common ground with, you know, when talking to people who did, I guess, feel different politically? Class issues, 100%. I mean, I think that's one of the great unifiers, politically speaking, in our entire country is class-based issues. So many people are struggling to make it, especially in this economy. They're living paycheck to paycheck or they're not getting a paycheck. Excuse me. And I think that that's the big unifier. Now, how you go about talking to people, getting them on your side requires a lot of strategy. But at the end of the day, the thing that that is most important to a lot of people is being able to get by. And a lot of that is being able to get by financially, economically. And so many people struggle with that. And that's the only concern that they have because it's the only concern that you can have. Right. And I think like for me, that was a lot of our life growing up. Like my dad had a good union job, but even that wasn't enough, you know, especially because my mom is a stay-at-home mom, it wasn't enough sometimes. And so, you know, they struggled a lot with money. And I learned that from day one, pretty much from when I became a cognizant human being. And so I think that's a great unifier because there's so many people who vote Republican, who vote Democrat, who don't vote, which is another important group. Right. The, the issues of class and and issues of, of just being able to afford the next meal or the next car payment or the next house payment or the next rent check, that is what a lot of people are facing day to day. And it it I think like in the macro level doesn't seem to be getting much better. When we spoke the first time, you know, I, I the question I asked you when we were speaking was, you know, what is the issue you keep coming back to on your podcast? And one of the things you said to me was unions. Now, I, I've been talking about unions a lot for the last, you know, year plus on my podcast, you know, I have my own feelings on it, mostly surrounded by the fact that I think that politicians for the most part are failing or have failed us. And when it comes to issues of, you know, equality, equity, 
you know, just trying to make sure that people are paid what they're supposed to be paid. They're not being mistreated in their workplace. I think unions are the best thing, you know, but I also am seeing there's a lot of hesitancy out there. A lot of people seem to be against unions for one reason or another. And, and I have my theories on the case, but I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Like, why do you think that when we talk about unions, that there are so many people who seem to have this hesitancy or this pushback at the idea of like, you know, just being in a union, forming one, hearing about them, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into that. Certainly, there's a lot of misinformation about it. A lot of people, a lot of, I think a lot of people in corporate settings or at the C-suite or, or some level above messaging or convincing people that, that it's going to cost them more money or that's not going to be beneficial to them and that they're not going to see that difference in their paycheck or that they won't have the level of independence that they want. And I think that that comes from the top down. And because of that, the top down has more power than like from a messaging standpoint and just in general, um, when, when, you know, working class people aren't as organized, the top, like, you know, 1% or the top people in a company have a lot more power and they're able to do that. And they're able to manipulate the messaging. I don't want to paper over the fact that like, you know, their unions do have their problems. They're not perfect, but they're, in my opinion, the best, the best means to which working people can unite to be on an equal playing field as the corporate interests that they work for. And I think people who have a comfortable salary, a good paycheck, are worried that unions are going to cost them money and are going to cause them to not make as much money or cause them to not feel as comfortable as they would. And I think by and large, that's not true. I, I mean, I think that there's so much of a gap between the, the lowest earners and the highest earners at some of these larger companies that you're seeing unionized like Starbucks and, you know, insert any other, like Amazon, for example, is another good one that it, it just is so inconceivable that you wouldn't have a union. I think that's the biggest thing. And, and for the most part, people that do participate in them, that do form them are satisfied and they're happy with them. And you can have a relationship between a union and a company that is, you know, civil and that makes sense. I mean, companies have been doing it for years. They may not like it because the, the goal of, of like a publicly traded company or really just any company in general is to make money and to make money for your shareholders if you, if you have shareholders. And so you don't get to maximize your profits if you have to keep negotiating uh, and, and coming up with new contracts that are paying people more. That's the conventional wisdom anyway. I, I don't think that that's necessarily true in all cases, but I think that the way that companies like that are able to to be successful is because they feel they need to. Yeah. And it's, it's part of like, you know, this, and look, I, there's plenty of criticisms of capitalism. I don't, I don't know what the alternative looks like that, that would be a better alternative. Some people say socialism. I don't know. I don't, I'm not an economist. I don't know enough about that to really even credibly opine on it. So I'm not going to, but what I will say is that when the overarching goal is to make money, that's going to get in the way of treating workers fairly a lot of times. And I think that that's where the unions are important and they come into play because their interests are on behalf of the workers. 
And so I think that there's an old narrative about unions, that they're corrupt, that the old union bosses, union thugs things, and certainly those still exist to some extent, but by and large, unions are, are an important part to a functioning capitalistic society. It's well said. You know, I, I think the, the, the part about capitalism there, I want to touch on that briefly. You know, it is unconscionable to me that we are living in a time where it feels as though employers seem to be in this, this endless cycle of trying to squeeze more out. Where And, and at the end of the day, there's only so much more, right? And, and we're seeing, I think, so many detrimental effects of that on society. So I think unions are kind of necessary as like a barrier, you know, to kind of protect workers from the fact that employers want to just keep paying people less and less and less, you know, effectively, you know, when, mm-hmm. you, when you factor in cost of living. So, and, and a union can be formed by anybody, right? You know, something like three people can get together, form a union, you know, so it, it's not, so people are like, oh, well, unions are all bad. Well, like 10 different unions can have 10 different effectivenesses. You know, it just, it, it kind of depends on which yeah. union it is, who runs and so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that. When you're only as good as the people that are in it as well. And people, like people, humans are flawed beings. So, you know, you're only as good as, as the people that make up your organization or in that case, your union. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously, you know, we talked about your podcast, talking about the area of the country, you know, like where this is all happening, but haven't really asked you a lot about your own personal politics. And that's something that I want to do. But before we do that, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to be asking our guest Chuck about, well, gun control, because it's in the news. We'll be right back. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. thought listeners has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side well then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode bathing beauties beads is a full service bead shop in the heart of downtown missoula whether it's seed beads semi-precious stones vintage beads or just materials to make a project they have something for every person and every price range not from missoula don't worry they have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at BathingBeautiesBeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order.
Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So before we went on the break, I had mentioned that I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit more about your personal politics. You know, obviously, if someone's coming to your podcast, they're going to want to know a little bit more about like who you are as a as a person, as a political commentator. And this issue is an issue that just keeps coming back up time and time and time again. Obviously, at the time of this that we're recording this, it's in the news once again. Uh, mass shootings happening in America. And it always leads back to the exact same question that it constantly does about like gun control in America, which it feels like it's a conversation that we're constantly having. But the angle that I want to take with it is a little bit different because I, I think when you hear the phrase gun control, it, it feels like it means something differently to different people. And that's kind of like where I want to bring this to you personally. When you hear the phrase gun control, what does it mean for you, uh, especially as somebody who grew up in a part of the country that's a little more rural and, you know, like, how do you think that we need to move forward with the issue of guns in America? So when I hear the term gun control, I just immediately, I immediately cringe, but, but not for the reasons that maybe people would think. I, I think it just, it triggers something in me of like, okay, this is going to be another instance where nothing's going to happen. And I don't know, I don't know why that is what I think of that, but it just seems to be like groundhog day in America. Every time you hear, we need more gun control, mass shooting happens. We need more gun control, but nothing happens. And it's because we have a, an ineffective political system, quite honestly, Yeah. at least at this point in our existence as a country. Um, I think like, I think first of all, reframing it as a, it's a gun violence problem, number one, because so much of shootings, like there's mass shootings. There's also a lot of suicides that happen with handguns. And I think that when you, when you reframe it as a gun violence problem, it's not as immediately alienating to people who are going to be very charged to, oppose anything and everything that you do. Um, rhetoric is obviously not everything, but I think it's a starting point. W- the fact of the matter is, is like something has to change in this country and we're going to have to try different things. And the, the thing that, that is going to happen is it's not, no public policy you can prescribe is going to prevent every mass shooting or even potentially the next mass shooting. But there's two like really important elements to this. One is that the public needs to have some confidence that their government can do something, that they can move on an issue that's divisive but important. And, and it's only divisive in among politicians. Things like universal background checks, red flag laws, even assault weapons bans are largely supported by the majority of the public, I can say at least the first two are, I'm not, I haven't seen the latest numbers on assault weapons bans, but I'm pretty sure there's at least a majority of Americans that are in favor of it. Either way, um, it hasn't been, you know, against the will of politicians to do something that's massively unpopular. They do that all the time. Uh, and often they are massively unpopular and get reelected, but for some reason, you know, and I have my thoughts on why we can't seem to get anything through at a federal level um, that does anything meaningful to try and address this crisis. Uh, and you can, you can kind of see how this plays out. Let's say that, you know, Congress passes an assault weapons ban the next week, a mass shooting 
happens with an assault weapon. And then you have the Republican side saying, see, we told you it wouldn't work. And that narrative takes the day on the right wing media, so on and so forth. We have to get past that because that's going to happen no matter what. We have to be able to try things and be willing to accept if like they work or they don't, but the government needs to start trying things. That gets to the second point is we actually need to make a meaningful effort to solve this problem. We are the only country in the world where this happens at this regularity and at this intensity. Part of that is because we have so many guns in this country, and I don't know what you do about that. I am not for confiscating guns. I think that's a terrible public policy idea. I think it's asking for violence and I think it will be given that. And I just don't think that it's, it makes any sense. Um, assault weapons bans. I'm for it. I don't know how effective it will be in a country where we have so many already in this, in this country. Um, but it's worth trying. I'm willing, I'm open to almost anything. I think that what is often papered over when talking about gun control and, and, and how do we prevent these mass shootings is that they, that we have a culture problem when it comes to guns, in my opinion. There is a culture that fetishizes guns, that glorifies them, and that values the freedom of owning as many as you want with as much of a high-capacity magazine as you want and as quick of a fire rate as you want over innocent lives. And that's just a fact. Like, that's that's a lot of consensus among, like, vociferous Second Amendment supporters have have aligned themselves with that. And I also think I should say that, but I am a second amendment supporter, just like I'm a first amendment supporter and very proud third amendment supporter. I don't think that we should be quartering any foreign soldiers in our houses, but <laughs> you know, with the first amendment, let's, that's a great one to start with. There are meaningful and reasonable restrictions to the first amendment, yeah. just like there should be with the second amendment. And I will always say that in DC versus Heller, which was a, conservative majority on the Supreme Court that I, I can't remember the exact holding, but it, it certainly was in favor of gun ownership. Uh, Antonin Scalia, former chief justice, um, may he rest in something, uh, upon, like wrote the opinion for that. And he even said that there, the, the, the second amendment is not unlimited and, and it shouldn't be. There is, there is so much com complexity in society that, you can't just have a blanket rule of like, yes, you have the right to have a gun no matter what, no matter who, no matter when, no matter why, uh, signed, sealed, delivered. That's just not how a functioning society works. It erodes our freedom rather than enhances it and supports it. It robs people of their freedom when you're mindlessly shooting people, especially little children in Nashville, the, a city that's near and dear to my heart where I used to live. I even had, I had a, a close friend who is a parent of a kid that, that went to that school, that went to Covenant School and wow. shared the text that she received from the administration on that day. And I cannot imagine like just how horrifying that must have been because it was several hours before she found out that her child was safe. And no parent should ever have to go through that. I, again, like I, I know it's a roundabout way of saying it. I don't, I don't have a great answer to what the problem, what the solution is to the problem, but there is a problem. People have to acknowledge that there's a problem and be willing to, to try things to solve it. That's the problem. We, we can't just not try things and just accept that we're a country where we have mass shootings almost every single day, but thank God we have the freedom to have a gun. Plenty of other countries, you can, you can have a gun and 
they don't have mass shootings because they have reasonable restrictions on them and they don't have a culture that glorifies the gun over everything. I think that's where I, I mean, that's, that's where I stand on the culture thing is one that really is going to need some work and will take a long time to, to massage out of society, but it's a problem. You had mentioned earlier that you, um, didn't want to go into the details about why you think that nothing ever gets done at a federal level, but that's a, that's a really important question. You know, like, oh, I'm why, happy to. I why doesn't things, you know, change at the federal level? Like what exactly do you think is happening in the halls of Congress that is preventing anything reasonable from changing here in America? There's a lot that goes into that. And I've, I've worked with, I've worked at the federal level on policy for a long time. Um, and so I, I, I'm not going to claim that I know everything about it, but I, I know a lot about it. And if Callie were here, she would be able to tell you even more because she used to lobby for a, a science um, organization uh, for a number of years. So she knows even more than I do. But part of it is the polarization of our politics where it's more important for politicians to score political points in order to be able to get reelected especially in the House of Representatives where there's elections every two years. So pretty much like within six or seven months of you winning your election, you have to start your fundraising efforts to get reelected and you have to give people a reason to get reelected. Uh, and that's where gerrymandering comes in because you have to appease the most extreme parts of your party in order to get reelected. Um, gerrymandering is a huge problem. I mean, if you look in Tennessee just recently, um, and I, I predicted this would happen because I played around with some 538 maps about gerrymandering uh, a few years back. But Nashville used to have a Democrat representing them in Congress for a number of years, Jim Cooper. Uh, he was a blue dog Democrat, but a Democrat nonetheless. And uh, Republicans redrew the lines in 2020 and basically cut Nashville into three different districts. And so they wrote out a Democrat. That that's wow. power gerrymandering in one small way. So you you take a largely liberal city and rob them of their representative by cutting it into thirds. Um, it's wild and it's legal. Anyway, so that's I mean, if to, to break it down in more simplistic terms, that's a big problem in the House. Break big problem in the Senate is the filibuster rule, uh, which is basically for lack of better explanation it takes 60 votes to get anything passed it's it's not a simple majority if we were governing by a simple majority i think a lot more would get done and i think there would be a lot more i think a lot more politicians would have to take difficult votes and therefore you would know their true colors and where they truly stand on issues there's a lot of senators who hide behind people like jim manchin and kirsten cinema and lisa murkowski uh, and the republicans and and susan collins who all four of them kind of go in the middle ideologically for the most part with voting. Right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Republicans and Democrats that hide behind them uh, and let them kind of be the, the, scapegoat. I don't know what the word is for it. The scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the blast door that, that holds off all the other scrutiny because they know that they can do that in the States that they represent. And, and that's really, and it's an endearing quality. If you're, if you're someone like Joe Manchin, you want to be able to have that, um, those stripes to you. But, uh, so like my point with that, I, I kind of went off on a tangent, but if you had a, a simple majority vote in the Senate, then you would have a lot more votes happening. 
And then you would have a lot more senators that have to take a side when they don't normally have to take a side. Oftentimes things don't even come up for a vote because uh, people just know that the filibuster is going to be invoked, that the cloture rule is going to be invoked, and they don't even take a vote on things. That, in its simplistic terms, those two things in the House and the Senate are the, the biggest problems from a from a systemic standpoint. And then the third element is obviously special interest lobbying, which you point a finger at the NRA very appropriately so, although the NRA's power has is, is very much weakened from, from its height of authority and its height of influence, uh, mainly because of massive mismanagement by Wayne LaPierre. Um, there's a fantastic book. I, I can't think of the name of it right now, but I'll try to look it up and give it to you before the episode comes out, that a journalist, I think for the Daily Beast wrote, um, that basically is a deep dive into the NRA. It's a fascinating read. Um, but you have special interest lobbying that both reinforces what the the politicians in Congress should be doing, but also creates a cult of personality at the constituent level where, you know, you campaign on being a, an NRA endorsed, I got A-plus rating from the NRA endorsed by the the state-based uh, firearms association type thing, litmus test, I'll never do anything to take away your Second Amendment rights, usually goes hand-in-hand with being pro-life, although I think that's changing um, yeah. uh, in our world now, which is good, but I think that the, like that's a, a very simple, boiled-down way of looking at it. It's obviously more complicated than that. But honestly, if you just change the filibuster rule in the Senate, I think that you could, you could see a lot of meaningful change happen. The filibuster rule is something that I talked about a couple of different times in my podcast over the last couple of years. You know, just for full transparency, in 2021, you know, February 2021, I first you know, spoke about it. And I was kind of in a place where I was almost against getting rid of it because my reasoning at the time was, oh, well, if you get rid of it, then once the Republicans inevitably take back the Senate, then they'll be able to pass whatever they want to. And we don't want to do that. But as time went on uh, throughout that year and, you know, obviously even before 2021 ended, I kind of got to a place where I I completely flipped my my stance on it. it. It just feels like nothing more than a tool of obstruction. And on top yeah. of that, it also was something that I, I came to realize that the House used to have a rule similar to the filibuster, but they got rid of it in the late 1800s. And so this idea that, you know, like a, that it needs to be in place, you know, because it's all it's always been there. Well, it hasn't always been there. That's kind of a misnomer about history. It hasn't always been there. It kind of just happened on accidents and has been abused over the last like decade plus now. I think it's nothing more than just a way in order to insulate politicians from having to do anything and keeping our country in this dysfunctional state actually just maintains the status quo, which is allows the companies in this country who are profiting off of this dysfunction to continue to profit off of this dysfunction. So I 100% agree with you. The filibuster absolutely needs to go and it might actually you know, help the country move forward if things are actually getting done, because nothing's getting done right now. Basically, you have Democrats just constantly pointing at Republicans being like, hey, you know, uh, look at look at them. They're just absolutely out of control. Like you you have to vote for us because like, look how out of control they are. And Republicans are absolutely fixated on the term woke and nothing else. Yeah. And nothing else. you're, You're very right. You know, and that's the that's the the final question I kind of want to ask you here. You know, when it comes to 
the Republican Party now because we kind of like haven't quite talked about them yet in this conversation here, but they're kind of tied into, you know, basically when we talk about unions, you know, they're against the unions. We're talking about guns. You know, they're the ones who are probably like keeping any kind of gun control measures from being passed more or less. And they, they've taken over that part of the country where you live at now. And I am just kind of curious as to how you view the current version of the Republican Party. And is there anything about it in your eyes that you think is actually. Do you think that these people actually are trying to do anything to improve the quality of the country? Or do you think that they're just trying to essentially just score political points to stay in power? A great question. Um, one thing I want to add real quick about the filibuster before going to that is I think if you were to eliminate it, it would also make the House a more effective body because the House often passes bills as quote unquote messaging bills because they know that it will not pass the Senate. And so they use it to campaign on. And I really think that it, it's it's important for democracy and it's important to for, pe- for people to see that they can have faith in government of doing something, even if that something doesn't ultimately work out the way they wanted it to, at least the government is trying to do something. Um, when it comes to modern day Republican Party, so I think that there there's there's several, like, there are Republicans at the local level. So I think the federal Republican Party is kind of a joke now. It's been fundamentally disrupted by Donald Trump and has quite literally geared its entire platform according to him and his kind of cult of personality and so and at the federal level it's more about scoring political points to get reelected, to get more donors and to you know own the libs whatever or what have you and a lot of that narrative is being fed by uber right-wing outlets you can go on and look at any of them whether it be you know the daily wire which is it is growing astoundingly fast and it's horrifying. Yes. That's a Ben Shapiro's publication. Um, it is, it is terrifying how large they're getting and that should not be ignored. Um, but so I think like the label Republican, I don't know that it has much meaning now because it's been so tainted by the Trump years. I think like there are elected Republicans, at the local level that have like, conservative principles that even if you don't agree with are at least like real principles like limited government limited spending um you know small supporting small business which shouldn't really be exclusive none of those really should be exclusively conservative i think there's there's value in those policies at certain points like when you know you add a little bit of nuance to it but uh as far as like the party as a whole like i i really don't understand what what the direction of it even is anymore i think that they leaned in too hard into trump because they felt they had to and they probably did in order to survive in the way that they're trying to but because of that they kind of made a deal with the devil and um you know in some ways it's kind of a shame i guess because it's i think the country's worse off when you have a a party that's governing based based on cult of personality with fascist tendencies there, you know, there are former Republicans that are still considered conservatives that I think hold a lot of value. I think that they're an unfortunate minority as far as like in the the governing space. But people like, I mean, if you're familiar with the outlet, the Bulwark is started by Charlie Sykes, who was a conservative uh, radio host from Wisconsin. He's had other like Never Trump Republicans that are part of it. 
I listen to it. I don't always agree with them. I probably agree with them maybe like 25% of the time, but I, I find that like there, there should be a place for people like that who are serious about government and, and who we can actually get back to real policy discussions about. I think one of the biggest problems though is, is how the media ecosystem is structured now. And, you know, it's, it's something where like the fringes should not be dictating the platforms, the policy platforms, the governing platforms, but unfortunately they are. And, you know, we see this play out. That's why woke as a term has been bastardized beyond any shred of reality. That doesn't why mean the, anything anymore. It means nothing. It's like how critical race theory means nothing, yet it was the most important issue of the you know 2022 election cycle. Um, just like how the caravan of migrants was was so dire in 2018, and now it suddenly is again. Um, goodness, what it's weird that those caravan of migrants only come around election time. I don't know. Maybe they just maybe they're timing that for their own reasons. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's just like that they. they they feel they can latch on to culture issues. I mean, transgender rights is a big part of that, right? Because it's it's something that's very new to most people. It's something that's confusing. It's something that actually does require at least a little bit of nuance to understand and realize that not every trans person situation is the same and that, that you know, it requires more than just like blanket statements about it, but they're able to weaponize that and both like demonize an entire group of people while also doing it under the lens of being rational and protecting children. And I think that that's a lot of what this stuff is boiled down to most recently, even with CRT, yeah. it comes under this guise of protecting children, which is such a gross way of, of enacting these ridiculous policy goals. Like book banning is now becoming more popular, which is absurd. That's something that it, it is wholly un-American and basically wipes your, you know, takes the first amendment and wipes your ass with it essentially. Yeah. And it, it just is, it, it's really wild to me that like, these are the priorities that are being focused on. And, but at the same time, it's being reinforced by certain voters. And I don't want to be an apologist entirely for that. There's huge problems that people like should be well aware of before casting a vote. And I think a lot of people aren't. Yeah. No, I mean, very well said. You know, it's um it's it's a bleak time. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It is a bleak time because when I when I see, you know, these these book bands talking about like trying to take critical race theory out of the schools, trying to essentially, from in my personal opinion, it looks like trying to completely eliminate people's ability to transition in this country if they want to. Um just that I mean, the whole civil rights issue of that is just beyond belief. The, the Republican Party, I do not know what they stand for other than just trying to maintain power at this point. I, I don't see any functional, you know, like reason for their existence other than just to exist, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you just know, retain what... power because they know they're losing a governing majority in the states. Yeah. They, they know that they're losing that state so to insulate their power as much as they can. Yeah. And in the process, just trying to find ways to hurt people, but also saying that it's, uh, you know, it's actually them protecting people, which they're also doing that at the same time that they're rolling back child labor laws. But 
you know, yeah. somehow right. they're still the party that's protecting children. With that being yeah. said, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, for those who are interested, where can people find you in the podcast at online? Anywhere you find your podcast, Pod Latcha, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A. You can find it there. You can go to our website, which is just the same name.com and same handle. Uh, our Every social media handle is just our name. So you can look us up on there. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really do appreciate it. For those who are interested, those links will be in the episode description. If you liked this episode, please go ahead and share it on social media, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you spend your time at. I know some people are still on Facebook. I think it's kind of weird, but you know, some people are still (laughs) there. Thank you so much to everyone for checking out this episode. We will see you in the next one. Yeah, thank you. 